Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yapai, and this is season five of a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. In 2011, a World Health Organization survey found that the French people were the most depressed in the world. Two years later, polling by the Via Voice Institute in Paris found that 70% believed France was in the grip of a collective depression, and that two-thirds believed their nation was in decline. Ten years later, there seems to be no more reason for optimism. The country's institutions are barely holding together, and civil strife, corruption, and economic stagnation have led to a profoundly fatalistic public mood. Resentment of immigrants, especially North Africans and Muslims, has become a prominent feature of French politics across the political spectrum, and the far right is on the march to a potential victory in the next election. Meanwhile, the country's international prestige has also begun to crumble as it struggles to sustain its influence in global politics. I'm joined today by Nabila Ramdani, a French-Algerian journalist whose book, Fixing France, How to Repair a Broken Republic, gives the Fifth Republic a terminal diagnosis. Quote, the modern republic is failing to live up to its once exalted reputation. France's lost grandeur manifests itself domestically in ancient institutions that are no longer fit for purpose. Corruption, civil strife, industrial decay, and globalist standardization are all part of the crisis. France is no longer the great world power it once was. Nabila, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Faisal. So let's start with this. Have you ever heard of Paris Syndrome? Paris syndrome. Yeah, so Paris syndrome is this peculiar psychological condition that they first observed among Japanese tourists, where the visitors to Paris are so disillusioned to discover that the reality doesn't match the fantasy, that it brings on these symptoms of psychosis. And oh, as I was, yeah, no, it's a real thing. And as I was reading- The your... Emily in Paris syndrome as well. Oh, well, there you, there you go. Right. A more modern update. But as I was reading through your book, I couldn't stop thinking about that expression because it almost seems as though over the past 10 years or so, the whole of France has come down with a collective case of Paris syndrome. Yes, uh, I, I think so. I think uh, one of the things that I highlight very strongly and very forcefully in, in my book is that there's a massive gulf between France, the myth, if you like, and France, reality. Mm. And they are certainly very different worlds indeed. Yeah. And the, the myth of France is that of a glorious republic, which was built on high ideals of liberty, equality and fraternity for all, which are known uh, around the world. Uh, France is, of course, also the birthplace of human rights. Uh, it's a country where everybody is technically treated as the same as a valued citizen. But the reality is a thoroughly uneven country, a country where billionaire industrialists are supported by a complacent Paris establishment and all broadly support the status quo because they do very well out of it. And what I note in my book is that reform is incredibly difficult because uh, the constitution of the Fifth Republic is incredibly dated and it doesn't allow the, uh, reform uh, to move forward and for France to adapt to the modern world. Uh, it, it, you know, we live in a world where uh, communities are changing rapidly, where new technology and, and better communications are also rapidly changing and they're altering the nature uh, of the world we live in. And in some ways, I would argue that we're, what we're going through is another enlightenment, if you like, 
with better communication and far more information, which help to expose uh, those fault lines. The the aspect of of modern France that you think is problematic seems to be rooted in this idealism of it, the glamour of it. You use this wonderful phrase in the book that France is overwhelmed by idealism. And you seem to think that at the root of the French problem today is this glamorization, this idealism. Yes, I, I think, you know, it, in my role as, as a journalist, I've, I've had access to widely contrasting aspects of, of French society from the working class areas of greater Paris where I was born and brought up by my Algerian parents uh, to France's ruling political and business elites. And what mm. this has taught me is that in theory, France is an idealistic country that projects itself as the land of liberté, égalité, uh, fraternité for all. But in practice, it delivers on those ideals only for some, for those with the right background, the right education, the right gender, uh, the right connections, uh, and so on. And um, of course, there's you know no doubt that France remains an incredibly glamorous uh, country, uh, at least in the popular imagination. You mm. know, it's associated with um, with great fashion, as we know, with great yeah. art with romance, uh, food, and a thousand uh, other things that make life so enjoyable. And that's why, you know, it's the most popular tourist destination in the world. But do you think that it is partly that glamorization that stops the French being able to see the problems that you discuss in the book? Yes, I think the big problem is that there's nothing idealistic at all about widespread inequality, uh, paramilitary policing, and now the very real prospect of a far-right uh, president taking over power without mm. anything approaching a parliamentary uh, a majority. So yes, a very important argument in my book is that France is built on impossible idealism, born out of revolutions, and, and this is why myths are so important uh, to holding it uh, together. As uh, former president uh, Charles de Gaulle himself uh, said, France is a perpetual illusion, and it's very hard to, to reform. Do you think you would feel differently if France had done a better job of living up to those ideals? Because you seem to be espousing more realism. But do you think if France had done a better job of living up to those ideals, that you might feel differently about where the French are now? I think France certainly needs a, a great dose of, of, of pragmatism, because the reality is that modern France is one of huge social divisions and uh, economic uh, inequalities, uh, for example. Um, there is this great dichotomy at the heart of the French Republic that stems from its very constitution. Uh, if you like, you know, constitutional experts sat down in the late 1950s and created a powerful presidential system that was meant to achieve results. And their document, which is the, the current constitution of the Fifth Republic is a nominally principled one that was meant to attain those noble ideals. But, but in practice, it has often achieved the opposite. And that's why you have millions of people who are alienated from a system that puts immense power into the hands of one president who is supported by a hugely powerful security state 
And so in practice, this system certainly doesn't achieve liberty, equality and fraternity for all. One of the parts of the book that I was talking to the producer about that we thought was very intriguing is that it's this idea of realism, because you can imagine a case where in other countries where there is also a certain amount of idealism, for example, the United States, you can imagine a case that Americans would ask for, as Barack Obama asked, a more perfect union, meaning they look for the for the the country to live up to its own ideals. Mm. It's intriguing to me that you don't do that. Your argument doesn't depend on more idealism. It depends on less idealism. It depends on realism. And I wondered why you went in that direction rather than, you know, asking it to live up to its own ideals. Because I, well, certainly, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, idealism. And, and, and France was built, was literally built on revolution, and, and the turmoil uh, has never subsided. Uh, but this is especially true today. Um, mm. That's why the country is in such turmoil, in such crisis, because millions of French citizens are, are far more pragmatic than that. They regularly take to the streets to express their anger. And they're not just unhappy about single issues many of them actually rage against the entire system, that entire idealistic system, if you like. And that's mm. really what my book is about. It's about state institutions that are outdated. It's about the Paris establishment that is looking after its own interests and indeed the interests of a few billionaire families. Um, and in that respect, you know, I highlight a number of structural problems, uh, constitutional problems, while also trying to solve them. And it's, a, it's very much a disruptive book, but in a positive way. It, 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 it follows in the, in the great tradition of, you know, of the, the French tradition of, of dissenting progress, if you like. Mm. You have a, a quite a specific historical critique about the founding circumstances of the Fifth Republic, um, which we'll get to. But first, I want to, to dig a bit into the precise nature of the current crisis. It seemed it's not just political dysfunction because that is a kind of a passing political moment. It seems to be something deeper and more existential. The authors of that poll that I talked about at the beginning they connected the French national depression to a sense of lost identity. Yes, I think that there's a, a great deal of truth in that, and and that's why my book doesn't solely concentrate on politics alone. I mean, clearly, uh, politics is, 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 is crucial, but there are 10 themes explored in 10 different chapters, and they include everything from economic injustice to segregated suburbs, the state of French feminism, uh, the treatment of, of women, terrorism, um, institutional rioting, uh, why France has paramilitary policing, also the deep-seated racial and religious discrimination that often make the headlines around the world and the rise of the far right, as exemplified by uh, the Le Pen um, family and, and indeed their, their, their dynastic party. And that's why my book doesn't shy away from very different, uh, very difficult uh, issues. And, yeah. uh, and I think, you know, but I, in, in fairness, I have attempted to be, um, well, you know, fair in my assessment of France, but, but the negative is invariably what readers find interesting. Uh, as we can see in the media every day, you know, as they say, no news is good news. 
But I think what makes France's problems unique, uh, it's its mechanism or its lack of mechanism to control the extremes, both on the left and indeed uh, on the right. And there's clearly, uh, you know, you talk about uh, comparing France with other uh, countries. There, there are certainly a lot of reasons why uh, extremism is on the rise, you know, in other parts of the world as well, and certainly across Europe. Uh, the cost of living crisis and a general feeling of impoverishment has made people feel pretty desperate and indeed radical. They're looking for radical solutions. Uh, immigration, for example, uh, has also become a huge media issue in very recent years in a way that it never was before. But I think that France's unique problem is, um, for example, contrary uh, to countries like um, uh, Germany, for example, Germany works coalitions very well. The UK, for example, very successfully keeps extremists out of parliament. You certainly wouldn't get 80 or so far-right members of parliament in, in the House of Commons, as is the case in Paris at the moment. And I think the very dangerous French presidential system allows uh, this kind of extremism uh, to, to govern. And it allows a single individual to take charge of the entire system with very few democratic checks and balances. And it may well be uh, that Marine Le Pen uh, can successfully play this system well enough to enter the Elysee as president uh, at her third attempt. Now, th this is important because this is at the heart of one of your criticisms of the current French setup, which is that you call it a monarchical presidency. Why do you think the, the French presidency is monarchical and why do you think that is such a problem? And we will come to Charles de Gaulle, but let's start with the monarchical presidency. Well, you know, in, in many ways, um, you know, the, uh, the France, you know, tried to get rid of, 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 of its king through a, a, very, a very bloody revolution. But the, the setup of the Fifth Republic has effectively given extraordinary powers to one single individual uh, to the extent that he has come to become a quasi-monarchical uh, president. Uh, the new uh, constitution of the Fifth Republic uh, has uh, effectively centralized all power, far too much power, in the head of state ever since it was founded in the 1950s. Um, and uh, certainly it has um, ended the reliance on parliamentary uh, government, uh, meaning that uh, the head of state can govern by decree, can override parliament, he can appoint anyone he likes to form of government, uh, whether they are close friends or indeed corporate cronies, and they don't even have to be uh, elected politicians. So. It's a massive flaw uh, in, in, in the system. But, but Nabila, when you say that the president can appoint these people, they can be cronies, and he can do that without them being elected, that is the exact same situation in the British Parliament. Oh, you have far more checks and, and balances in, in the British system in the sense that you have a truly parliamentary democracy where you know laws are voted, uh, when they are have been submitted to Parliament, when they have been approved by representatives of the people. Uh, as we've seen uh, in France, uh, including very recently, um, Emmanuel Macron has appointed 
um, a year ago or so, a very lackluster prime minister whom he uses to just rubber stamp uh, his legislation by literally bypassing parliament and using a very specific clause uh, known as clause 49.3, which allows the president to pass any legislation without even submitting it to the vote in, in parliament. And that's a major um, fault in, in the system that really testifies to, um, you know, a, a lack of democracy. Mm. You look at uh, Charles de Gaulle, the founding father of the Fifth Republic, as someone who sowed a lot of the seeds of the present crisis. Let's start with that and why you think Charles de Gaulle, who's known, of course, as a Second World War hero, why do you think that the republic he ushered in still has these same problems? Well, you know, the um, my, my, my book certainly examines the intricate link between the foundation and the constitution of the Fifth Republic and indeed the Algerian War of Independence. And context is, is crucial here. The Fifth Republic was founded during a period of utter turmoil, and the chaos was mainly caused by the Algerian War of Independence. The worst violence was obviously in North Africa, in Algeria, but there was also plenty of that spilling on, onto mainland France to the extent that a civil war was threatened. And very fierce nationalists wanted to hang on to France's most valued colony, which was in fact considered as part of the French territory per se. Uh, and meanwhile, you, you had plenty of others who wanted to let it go of Algeria. So this was a time, of course, when the world was waking up to the principle of self-determination and the right of indigenous Algerians to roam their own affairs and to roam their own country. It was also a time when Arab Muslims living in countries, including Algeria and France, were treated as a servile class without political rights. And Charles de Gaulle, um, the great war hero, was brought out of the political wilderness to effectively impose military values on the chaos. And himself and his supporters uh, argued that a strongman leader was required and that the increasingly weak parliament in Paris should not be an encumbrance uh, to this. And, and that's how we ended up with, with a system that uh, gives, you know, those extraordinary powers to a single individual. And I think that reforming this kind of uh, presidential system uh, should involve removing the mechanism by which a highly determined individual can effectively take control of the whole system. You've written quite a lot about the Algerian War of Independence, which is, I think you can call, call it modern France's original sin. Apart from the the structure of the uh, of the government, how do you think the legacy of that period affects France today? Well, I certainly think that uh, the Fifth Republic's firm roots uh, in the Algerian War of Independence um, has still an awful lot of influence in the way people like me are treated today. Uh, in the sense that we were originally classed as Arab Muslims from Algeria and not French citizens. Uh, extensive security was used to subdue us, for example, 
state of emergency legislation allowed curfews on, on the housing estates. And these measures are still regularly used today. And dare I say, on the most basic level, there is no doubt that an Algerian name and indeed appearance holds you back in a country where we are still treated with immense uh, suspicion. And that also goes for Arab Muslim names and, and appearances. And um, it is certainly the case that, you know, the, the Gallic culture, which is envied all over the world, is not designed for people like us. There is a real sense of, of exclusion, uh, one that is encapsulated by the uh, out-of-town uh, housing estates in, in, the, in the suburbs, the suburbs where I grew up. Uh, and as a former prime minister uh, of France put it, there is certainly a social, ethnic and territorial apartheid in, in France. Uh, there are very few opportunities to break out of those uh, neglected housing estates, either physically or indeed metaphorically. And there is still an awful lot of inequality and indeed uh, injustice for, for people from my kind of background. And, um, and, and this is something that uh, France needs to sort out. One of the things that I argue needs urgent fixing. This is a part of the story, I think, that those of us who live outside of France very rarely hear. When you look at a, a country like the United States, which had an African-American president, and you look at the UK, which currently has an ethnic minority prime minister, do you think that France, which would count itself you know, in terms of its history and its uh, power and its economic might, it would count itself in the same category as those two countries, at least. Do you think that there is a chance of a non-white president in France? Well, I think it's uh, very, very difficult to envisage, uh, not least of all, um, you know, witnessing the kind of uh, populism and indeed extremism that is uh, rife in, in France as epitomized by a party like the the national uh, rally um it it is you know a terrifying um prospect um that one day and perhaps not so um long in in the future uh, that a, a an extremist can literally um pass all sorts of you know bigoted um um policies uh, uh, once they they end up as head of state but, uh, you know, we often talk about angry communities in France and France makes the headlines in terms of uh, rioting. And I can assure you that the really violent rioting doesn't just come from ethnic minorities. Uh, the biggest uh, protest movement in recent years were the Gilets Jaunes, the so-called Yellow Vests, who are mainly white working class um, agitators. And they brought cities such as Paris to a standstill you know, Saturday after Saturday while causing millions of pounds uh, worth of, of damage. So, you know, th there were classic French riots and there have been a continual feature of both uh, Macron's terms of office. But people from ethnic minority background, as far as these communities are concerned, France refuses even to acknowledge different identities on the basis that French citizenship is meant to transcend uh, race and indeed religion in a colorblind republic. So that's a major distinction as opposed to countries such as Britain and indeed the United States, uh, uh, where race is, is an important uh, aspect. Uh, in France, there is no official ethnic data 
uh, monitoring uh, discrimination or indeed uh, analyzing discrimination, which is dangerously counterproductive in a nation where it is uh, estimated that 32% of people under 60 have migrant ancestry. So far from building a cohesive society, I think that France's rejection of differences has in fact fostered uh, bigotry, uh, suspicion, and, and indeed extremism. You see some of the differences in the way that different communities protesting are treated. You saw this earlier in the summer. So earlier in the summer, you had a 17-year-old called Nahel Marzouk, who was killed by police in Nanterre. And when it emerged that the police had lied about Marzouk attacking them, it sparked protests and, and riots and so on. And yet the French public didn't seem to show the same amount of sympathy towards those communities protesting as they had with the Gilets jaunes uh, or the pension reform strikers before that. It seems like there's a very obvious dissonance, and it's not only coming from the far right. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, observation. You know, I, I mean, as I pointed out, uh, violent rioting is, uh, is a, a national pastime in France. And I have to say that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, violence is not acceptable in, in any form, and, and many French people would agree with that. But, uh, you know, it, it's a, a vehicle to express all kinds of, of grievances in France and uh, that trigger that kind of violent rioting from uh, pension reform to the price of petrol to the sense of inequality that so many young French people complain about. But you don't seem to get the, uh, that same level of sympathy when it comes to young people living on those estates. Um, but the, the fact what is your explanation for that, though? Well, well I think, you know, uh, they are viewed as, uh, and this is, has to do with the, the current political climate where gender-led politicians are allowed to spread the, 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 the deceit that uh, people from those communities are uh, a, a problem. They are the uh, alien within, if you like. And they are whether people like me who were born and raised in France and, and are fully fledged French citizens, we're still being viewed as second class citizens in many ways with, uh, you know, not the same kind of opportunities uh, that are available to us. And, and, and that's why there is very little sympathy for, for, for people uh, like us, dare I say. That's why not much is done to bring those communities into mainstream society. That's why they remain stuck literally on the margins of society mm -hmm. on those decrepit housing estates while uh, not being given the same opportunities. And, you know, in a way, it's, it's very sad to see that um, most of the young people growing on those, on those estates aspire to becoming footballers or, or pop stars as the only way of really making it. They, they don't have, they're not, you know, given the ambition or indeed the, the, the tools or the means to uh, join mainstream society and, and earn a living, you know, in, in the same way that other um, members of French society uh, do. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about some of the criticism your book has received. The British critic Jonathan Meads accused you in The Telegraph of having, this is a quote, uh, what the French call an Anglo-Saxon mentality. 
Her writing relies on concepts such as neo-Puritanism, Islamophobia, and diversity. What would your response to that be? Well, the response to that, and as I make it abundantly clear in, in my book, is I for France to uh, live up to its ideals, uh, it, has, uh, it only has to look at its own history, at its own tradition, at its own principles that are set in stone, that are noble ones, uh, and that it is failing to implement. So I don't think France needs to uh, look for other models or how you know, other societies um, work. Um, but the actual fact is I was given uh, chances abroad. And, uh, you know, uh, many of my contemporaries remain stuck on the estates into lives on, on the periphery, as I was saying. But mm. I had to move abroad to improve my life chances. And a lot of people from my background had to literally uproot themselves to go and, and, and be treated as equal citizens in, in, in different countries. So I don't think that that accusation, if I may put it that way, is actually uh, founded. I think um, you'll, you'll find that um, Anglo-Saxon countries, as the French like to refer to them, uh, mm. are, are usually more egalitarian. And certainly Britain is far more egalitarian than France. Uh, I had opportunities to work in, in America as well. I was given a chance to be a lecturer at the University of Michigan, for example, or work um, um, in, uh, on, um, in different, uh, uh, with different media platforms uh, in America. That's where I actually started my career as a journalist. So it is not, you know, I think it's fair to highlight that people of my background have been given chances abroad and that needn't be the case if only France's lived up to its own uh, reputation and its own uh, ideals. Do you think sometimes the French find it difficult to measure their societies against other societies? They, they, they find it difficult to look across the channel at Britain or at the United States and say, well, some of the issues that you guys have are similar to our issues and maybe we can learn from those solutions. Well, I think the French mindset remains uh, very parochial. Uh, dare I say, and that's why uh, the French vote um, in huge numbers for, um, you know, um, parties like the National Front or the National, which has become the National Rally, that remain very focused inwards, uh, in many ways, very provincial parties. And France finds it difficult to to open up and, and see how the rest of the world uh, deals with the uh, issues that... Uh, you know, the world over has to deal with. Mm. I wanted to ask where you think the French experience fits into the wider world. That, Of course, there are certain aspects of the current crisis which are distinctly French, and you outline them in the book. But in another sense, there's nothing unique about populist unrest or um, the response to progressive ideologies or even, you know, an increasingly assertive far right, although it's played out in different ways. Your book mostly looks for the roots of these crises within the borders of France and its extended mm. empire in Algeria and so on. Um, I'm curious to know how much of a part do you think wider global forces have to play in that? Well, I, I think, you know, France is a modern, vibrant, economically powerful state, but it needs to do things better. And 
history doesn't stop. Uh, change happens all the time. And like everything else, you know, nations need to keep adapting to change circumstances. And that's where France is failing, uh, uh, you know, in, in a very dramatic manner, dare I say. Uh, France has outdated institutions that lead to stagnation. And there is plenty of evidence to suggest that France is stagnating. And you become most aware of, it, of, of this in what's called the left behind France, in, in the rundown suburb, uh, suburban housing estates, in vast swathes of countryside, and in former industrial towns, for example. And, um, you know, without even looking beyond its borders, France is well equipped to deal with all that. Uh, but uh, um, the, the crucial point in all this is that you have an elite that looks after itself and that prevents that kind of um, trickle down or redistribution of, of resources in, in a fair and egalitarian manner. I wanted to conclude by asking you a bit about the reception of the book. Now, the first part is that you wrote this book in English, not in French. Mm -hmm. I wonder why why did you do that? Because the, the criticism that, that can be made and has been made is that you are therefore not writing for a French audience. You're writing for an English-speaking audience. Well, I'm writing for a, a global audience, really, because, you know, when I speak to most people in foreign countries, including uh, Britain and indeed America, for example, uh, the heartwarming old myths uh, still prevail. And, uh, you know, the, the public perception is still one that sees France as a rather quaint, uh, antiquated country where you can go and escape uh, uh, reality. And uh, the aim of my book uh, is to cut through the myths and describe a country where there is mass dissent, including in, in the countryside, and where political institutions aren't really fit for purpose. So... You know, that was really my audience to, to, you know, to debunk all those myths about France that, uh, you, you know, that are known to the wider public around the world. What was the reception been like in France? Because this is one of the few books on these, these wide political themes written by someone from a, a non-white French background. I wonder if that influenced the reception at all. Well... Uh, my book hasn't come out in the French language uh, yet, um, so I will have to wait and see when it's translated into French. But uh, I have spoken about it uh, to um, a, a few uh, civil servants, for example, and uh, French politicians, and they very much, you know, um, see that they don't have much to say about the subject. They talk about their droit de réserve, i.e. the right to abstain from emitting uh, an opinion about it because uh, they are civil servants. Um, mm. But it has to be said that in the past, I've often been accused by uh, members of the political establishment as being anti-patriotic for yeah. uh, voicing opinions, uh, and dare I say, uh, based on facts. <laughs> I mean, that's a standard criticism that people from non-white backgrounds face whenever they raise these issues. They wouldn't say that the political opposition of Mélenchon is anti-patriotic. But that's the same thing, right? What's the difference? Yes, uh, precisely. And I, and I think, you know, people from my background are not expected to write books like mine in, in the first place. And that, that's really what uh, the, the Telegraph critic that you quoted earlier was expressing. 
He's a, a, a white man of a certain age, rooted in, his, in certain views of the world, and he doesn't want that world to change. And he doesn't want that world, where he's doing well out of it, to be disturbed or perturbed by people like me coming in and saying, you know, we want you know, to share the opportunities. You know, the end of his world doesn't mean the end of the world. In mm. fact, it means the beginning of the better world where everybody can have a share and a stake in society. Nabila Ramdani, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. You can find Nabila Ramdani on Twitter at Nabila Ramdani. Her book, Fixing France, How to Repair a Broken Republic, is in bookshops now. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. (music) 